Law Focus Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Law Focus. My name is Millicent Hindueni, your voice of law for the evening, right here on VAUFM 88.1. It is not just during election season that attacks against foreigners take place. It may be important as a starting point to try and understand legally what is expected of a foreign national in South Africa. And that is not to say that we should simply end the discussion there with what the law says. Let us make an effort to engage the law and ask pertinent questions such as, is the law reasonable? In my opinion, there are many examples that can be given to critique that the law has discrepancies in its relationship with foreign nationals. Whether it should change or be interpreted differently, I believe is a question that can be open for debate. Join our conversation as we deliberate on these and other important points with our guests, Wayne Ngube, attorney at Lawyers for Human Rights, as well as Disege Kasambala, a human rights advocate with over 15 years experience and currently based at Freedom House, where she is the director of the organization. Of course, this wouldn't be a conversation without your input. If you wish to join the conversation, you can send us a tweet on at VAUFM using the hashtag LawFocus. You can also send us a voice note on WhatsApp. The number to dial is 084-078-4912. Do stay tuned for the upcoming discussion. But before we get into that, let us first see which stories are making headlines this week. Here are our legal hotspots. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, of the, stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. In our first story this week, Police Minister Begi Tele has revealed in a parliamentary written response to Parliament that a total of 4,174 members of the police have criminal records for a variety of crimes ranging from assaults, theft, kidnapping and fraud. This was in response to questions asked by DAMP Diane Collar Barnard, who asked about the number of employees at senior management level who had criminal records and also the nature of the crimes. The police minister further noted that amongst those with criminal records, 32 are senior managers who had convictions for crimes such as fraud, public violence and assaults. Of the 32 senior managers, Three were convicted for offences relating to the contravention of the Arms and Ammunition Act and the Firearms Control Act and 19 for contravening road traffic legislation. Three were convicted of contravening internal security legislation. Seven had common law-related offences such as fraud, public violence, contempt of court, malicious damage to property, and assault respectively and one member had an offence related to the contravention of liquor legislation over and above a traffic offence. The police minister declined to name the affected officers. In our second story, a 30-year-old man from Soweto has handed himself to the police earlier today after allegedly strangling his 24-year-old girlfriend Yolanda Dlepu to death on Sunday. The 24-year-old from Dobsonville died on Sunday afternoon after years of allegedly being in an abusive relationship with the man. The woman is said to have stayed on with her 30-year-old boyfriend 
although he had allegedly been beating her up for over three years. Police spokesperson Sergeant Pindi Lemavuso says the man was on the run on, from Sunday afternoon after the incident. Mavuso also says that the investigation revealed that Lepu had previously opened two cases of assault against her boyfriend and had a protection order against him. Then in our third story, the family of a businessman, Kazuel Maseko, 30, was allegedly killed by his wife, Itmeling Makamele. Maseko believes the justice system has failed him after the murder case against a 26-year-old woman had been withdrawn. She was arrested in September last year after she allegedly stabbed and killed her husband at their home at an estate in Emalatleni, Mpumalanga. According to the National Prosecuting Authority, the case has been withdrawn because a key state witness died. Caswell's uncle, Sunday Maseko, says the family was devastated that they will not get justice for their son's death. He says they would have to make peace with the court's decision. And in neighboring Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwean government has revealed plans to start paying compensation this year to thousands of white farmers who lost land under former President Robert Mugabe's land reform nearly two decades ago. The government has set aside $17.5 million in its budget, saying it seeks to bring closure to a highly divisive issue. Two decades ago, Mugabe's government carried out at times violent evictions of 4,500 white farmers and redistributed the land to around 300,000 black families, arguing it was redressing imbalances from the colonial era. The land issue in Zimbabwe continues to be a divisive one, as others see it as a partisan process that has left the country struggling to feed itself. President Emerson Mnangwagwa's government sees the paying of compensation to white farmers as a key to mend ties with the West. The initial payments will target those in financial distress, while full compensation will be paid later. And in our final story for this week, DA's Gauteng Premier candidate Soli Nsimanga has said his party was not inciting any xenophobic behavior when it advocated for the securing of borders by the South African National Defense Force. He said, if anything, it showed a sense of leadership and protecting its citizens. Nsimanga was speaking during a picket this morning at the Department of Defense in the CBD in Swanee. The Premier, hopeful, was joined by spokesperson on immigration Jacques Julius and Member of Parliament Pumzile Van Dam. And those are our legal hotspots this week. You are tuned into Law Focus on 5M 88.1. Rounding up all, all the top stories of the week legal hotspots. It is hard to imagine that people will just up and leave their homes, the comfort of their countries, to be a problem elsewhere. If all was well where they come from, why would they just leave? Surely people are motivated by a better future, greener pastures. But the difficulty with popular discourse is that at times we have politicians who will speak against xenophobia, whereas at the same time, in the same breath, they will articulate many notions that continue to encourage xenophobia. Tonight's conversation revolves around issues of ethics as well as empathy for people on both sides of the coin, that is, for foreign nationals, 
as well as for South African citizens. Let us begin by unpacking South African law's expectation of foreign nationals. And if its policies and requirements are reasonable, that is a question we should ask. And to do just that for us is attorney at Lawyers for Human Rights, Wayne Ngube. Joining us now on the line is Head of Strategic Litigation at Lawyers for Human Rights, Mr. Wayne Ngube, who is going to help us unpack everything that we want to understand about immigration and how it relates to foreign nationals in South Africa. Thank you for joining us here on Law Focus. Yes. Uh, Thank you for having me. I think perhaps let's begin by outlining what a citizen is and what a foreigner is legally. Yes, so a citizen is someone who's recognized as a national of a particular state. So in South Africa, it would be someone who's recognized as a national of South Africa. And this is governed by our Constitution and by uh, a Citizenship Act. And the Constitution allows for anyone born in the country to be a citizen or born to South African parents to be a citizen. Or And then there's a class of people, if you're married to a South African, eventually you can attain citizenship or if you have permanent residence there's a path to citizenship as well. A foreign national is in someone who is a citizen of another country that is not South Africa, uh, but who is in the country. Okay. And how does citizenship work? Could you be born in South Africa, but not South African? Yes. Uh, And it depends on if you're born in South Africa, but you're born to someone who is a foreign national, and you attain the citizenship of your parents, uh, then depending on uh, international law, like whether the other country allows for dual citizenship, you will then not automatically get South African citizenship. However, our constitution is very clear that anyone who is born in South Africa, even to foreign nationals, if they do not, cannot attain the nationality of another country, they then become South African citizens. Okay, um, and we do, don't we have like children who are born in this country who might not actually have a national identity right now as we speak? Yes, it's a massive problem and uh, at Lawyers Human Rights we have a project called Statelessness. Our Statelessness Unit deals with people who, uh, who are stateless for whatever reason. So in other words, they have not attained a nationality. And a lot of them are people who are born in South Africa. Some two South African nationals, others to who might have been abandoned, and then uh, we kind of then deal with making sure that the system takes care of them. Uh, we've so our laws in terms of our birth registration laws and our citizenship laws and our constitution, not all of them kind of read together, and some people end up being left in limbo. It's a global crisis, though, so it's not something that's unique to South Africa. Wow, okay, cool. And then what documents does a foreign national require to live in South Africa? So there are two regimes that govern uh, foreign nationals in this country. It's the Immigration Act and the Refugees Act, and both of those different uh, statutes provide for uh, a variety of permits or documents that uh, foreign nationals can get, depending on whether they qualify for the various uh, permits required for both. Uh, So in the Citizenship Act, there are a range of permits, all the way from visitors' permits uh, to permanent residence permits, work permits, uh, volunteer permits, there's a whole wide range, and all of them have different requirements and our regulations set up how you can get them. Then on the refugee side, it's to protect people who 
uh, have uh, a reformist concern, people who have a fear of persecution or who are coming from destabilized areas or who are descendants or, or, or dependents of people in those categories. And there, there is a whole regime of law which kind of governs both of them. Um, you mentioned uh, quite a number of different permits that are necessary for you to be legal in the country. Which are the most common? Uh, so I think the, I think the most the two most common probably are your asylum seeker permits through the refugee system and your visitors permits. So uh, the Immigration Act allows uh, with this read with this regulation allows for uh, people to be able to. Uh, into the country, particularly in the Sadiq region, it allows for the movement of the Sadiq citizens to come into the country and get visitors' permits without applying for them beforehand, and up to a, a maximum of three months, which can be renewed once for an additional three months. Uh, and it's probably the most common permit used. Uh, we obviously have people who also stay here. We have uh, a lot of people who are on work permits who are working in the country. Just like we have a lot of South Africans who are abroad who are on work permits as well. Do you think everyone who ought to have this information actually knows about all these different uh, permits and which ones are applicable to them? Like, I didn't know you mentioned something like a volunteer permit. I never knew that there was anything of the sort. Uh, Well, I mean, I think this is just the reality with the law and its accessibility. Uh, I don't think this it just doesn't come down to just the issue of uh, uh, immigration, where a lot of people are not aware of all, all the different laws that are applicable to them. I think it's, it cuts across everything, uh, and uh, there is a, a definite lack of knowledge around the law and people's rights throughout uh, in South Africa, but I would say throughout the whole African continent. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of complex reasons to deal with that, which includes uh, a lot of the historical past of, of the country and the deep inequality that we see within uh, a lot of these countries, which generally information like that is generally at the hands of people who are more privileged, who have access to it. So how do we go about then trying to get the information and trying to share it with other people? What avenues are we supposed to be taking use of? Uh, yes, so uh, I mean, this is part of what we do as lawyers, human rights. We're just one legal NGO, but a lot of the different legal NGOs, uh, Chapter 9 institutions, uh, other uh, civil society groups, a, a big part of their mandate is trying to make people aware of their rights, aware of uh, legal options, making the, the increasing their access to justice. There is also a responsibility on the state to try and help with that access to justice and help bridge that information gap, but also provide people with easy remedies to access. Unfortunately, the way uh, justice or rights have traditionally been accessed has been in in a manner which is very elitist and which uh, makes it difficult for people of uh, lesser financial means to be able to access it or lesser social status to to be able to access it. But uh, our constitutions 
are meant to treat everyone as equal and that that gap is part of what we try and uh, and close mm. and i mean um uh, there's also the issue of acquiring a south african id um can you perhaps unpack for us under what circumstances a foreign national is eligible for a south african id and then what is the difference that such an id actually makes in their life uh, okay so Basically, so just generally with statelessness, right, uh, documentation, valid documentation, whether it's in the form of an ID or even a permit, that, that is how society interacts with you. And if you do not have an ID, you you cannot interact with uh, society. Uh, it will exclude you from being able to get basic services, whether it's uh, health care, whether it's education, whether it's financial services, uh, so an ID is crucial to, to individuals' just sense of belonging in society and people who do not have them. Uh, a lot of people end up being in the outskirts of society and having their rights regularly violated. Now, if you're a South African citizen, you, you would have your birth registered and then with your birth certificate uh, at, at a particular age, you can then go and make an application for your ID by uh, providing your birth certificate and you do that at a home affairs office. Th- that process is fairly simple. You just need to go to your, whatever home affairs office you have. As a foreign national, uh, if you attain permanent residency, you are then able to get an identification document. Uh, you go with your permanent residence certificate and you lodge the application. Uh, there'll be a number of documents that you'll be required to give and then you should get your ID after that. Also, refugees who have been recognized in the country as refugees can get an ID document, but not asylum seekers. Mm. Sure, it's so complex. Like, I'm trying to make sense of everything. Okay, so um, perhaps that starts with what documents generally does a foreign national need to have in order for them to be legal in the country? Uh, So... It's any immigration or refugee permit that is valid. Uh, And so uh, there isn't one document which kind of fits it. As long as you have one of the many, I would say there are about eight immigration permits, uh, then you you can stay in the country like a work permit, visitor's permit, or or whatever it is. Uh, And then, or if you have a valid refugee or asylum permit. So I wouldn't say that, you know, like people have to have that volunteers permit and that makes them valid. It's just a permit which is valid in terms of the Immigration Act or the Refugees Act. And then you also spoke about permanent uh, residence, for instance. And um, I think to get permanent residence, you first have to have had temporary, what is it called, the temporary residence um, visa in South Africa for a while. Um, That might be one avenue. Uh, again, the permanent residency, you can attain it in a number of different ways. You can get permanent residency through refugee status once you're certified as a refugee indefinitely. You can get it through being a dependent. You can get it through having resided uh, in the country for five years on a work permit. You can get it through an exemption from the minister. So there isn't this one catch-all method which is uh, perfect, which you say, okay, this is how you get permanent residency. Mm. There are a number of different manners in which you could get permanent residency, which are spelled out in the Immigration Act. Okay. Uh, 
All right. We are in conversation with Wayne Ngube from the Lawyers for Human Rights, and he's helping us unpack everything that we need to know. It's very informative and it's interesting, and you don't want to miss this. So please do stay tuned here on Raw Focus. So, Wayne, we also cannot escape the reality that other Africans are fleeing their countries for for varied reasons, be it economic, political, natural disasters, relationships sometimes, but not all of them are skilled, meaning that they can only do the same jobs as an ordinary South African who might also not have skills, correct? Now, is the law reasonable by saying that they should simply be deported if, if they cannot be classified as having critical skills so it's tough for them? Uh, so... Sorry, I don't quite understand your question. So my question uh, is, yeah. um, in terms of the Immigration Act, yeah. um, we've got requirements that a foreign national must meet in order for them to be allowed a visa or yes. a permit. And one of those most crucial that shows up a lot is what is called critical skills. So yes. they, you need to show that there's no South African who can do the job that you are doing. But the reality is that is not necessarily the case. Sometimes you run away, you don't have an education, you, you're just like another South African who's not skilled. You're also only able to do menial yeah. jobs. And uh, the, the, according to the law, um, you, don't, you shouldn't get a permit because you're not offering a critical skill. Um, and I'm now, I'm now asking, is, is that actually reasonable from the law to say, no, you must be deported because you're not offering us what we want um, from you, so it's tough. Yes, so just with the crit- critical skills visa, for clarity, it's just one of a lot of different options that you can have. It is not a requirement, it is not the only way you can get a work permit. A critical skills visa is a, a permit is uh, a permit whereby where there is a specific need in the country and it is a critical skill that is in shortage in the, in the country. So obviously, if no South African can do the job, there's a bit of a preference. It's almost a brain hunt that the country needs, right? And a lot of successful countries do that. They see what expertise that they have in the country and the ones that they don't, they try and uh, export in a way, right? But it doesn't mean that uh, that anyone who's getting a work permit has to uh, essentially have uh, a critical skill. Uh, however, you are correct in that the way in which our Immigration Act has been interpreted recently with the uh, regulations amended in t- uh, 2014 has made it a lot more elitist and has made uh, travel into the country and the ability to gain permits a lot more elitist. Uh, and that has started to create this uh, a situation where... Uh, by the Immigration Act is interpreted in a critical, critical skills manner wherein the Immigration Act does not read from its plain language in that manner. It makes it very hard for uh, what no, normal Africans to travel into the country as opposed to uh, other nationalities. And so th- this is something that is, uh, has been problematic. Uh, and it's something that I think is discussed in recent white paper bills that we've seen come out. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it, it, I agree with you in the sense that it is problematic the trends to which that interpretation has happened, but that's certainly not what the law is saying. Oh, so what is the law saying? 
Well, so the law uh, uh, sets out a variety of different permits that you can get. Critical skills permits is just one type of permit and it's different from your normal work permit. Uh, what's happening is there is an interpretation of the law through regulations which has placed a high burden on, on a lot of other permits to then require that high level of expertise as a critical skills permit when that should be its own category. Because so then someone I'll... else who has a job in the country should not, uh, uh, should not be going through the stringent requirements that uh, someone applying for a critical skills visa should be, uh, should be doing. Yeah, because I was going to ask that for those people who are waiters, gardeners, domestic workers and taxi drivers who are not mm-hmm. South African, then what permit are they operating on? So, um, you see, generally speaking, they should be able to operate on a work permit. And in the past, I, I think quite a few of them might have been able to get such work permits. A lot of them probably have other permits, whether it's powerful permits with the work endorsement, whether it's refugee asylum permits, or whether it's uh, uh, there are also dispensation permits for for certain countries like uh, I believe it's Lesotho and Zimbabwe. Uh, so the, the, those critical skills permits or even work permits are not the only permits available. Okay, but it's probably the easiest to get. No, actually, the critical skills permit is the hardest to get. The problem comes in when every permit starts being interpreted on the high standard that mm. the critical skills permit is. Mm. Uh, so, because the critical skills permit is, these skills are vital to the country we want to bring them in. And now, if we're going to say every all migration is going to be viewed like that, that's really being uh, very elitist and exclusionary. Mm, okay, makes sense. And then also there's the issue of deportation. And my interest in this is what assurance does the public have that when people are being deported, it is safe and it is dignified? How do we know that that is being done in the correct manner and not just almost like trashing people around? Well, I, this has been traditionally a massive problem. And there's been a lot of litigation around this issue. We even have uh, detention monitoring unit in our organization which has monitored detentions and deportations for 15 years and seen a lot of rights violation and it's something that uh, the courts have pronounced on a lot in terms of the unlawful rights violations that have taken place in the manner of deportations and detentions for the purpose of deportation mm. uh, and it is something that, uh, that that is has been an ongoing battle and recently what we were able to do through strategic litigation is have uh, the Immigration Act read uh, uh, consistently with the Constitution and ensure that now all detentions for the purposes of deportations and deportations are confirmed by a court to ensure that they start falling in line with the law. Uh, and, all the, and this judgment is recent in 2017. And we now see a lot more of these uh, confirmation hearings in magistrate courts. And these are meant to provide a barrier of uh, uh, access to justice and ensure that there's some sort of oversight around deportations. So the short answer is, yes, the the rights violations in the process of deportations is well documented. Uh, We've seen stateless people, some even uh, people who are South African, foreign nationals who are valid in the country, 
uh, asylum seekers and refugees, people with reform and concerns who've all been either detained or deported unlawfully and the courts have pronounced on the lawful nature in which all of this has taken place. Uh, but we're hoping now that all of that, there's now judicial oversight all over that mechanism of detention and deportation that will start to see a lot of those processes forward in the law. No, it's good that we've got some work that's being done in that area as well. And as we wrap up our conversation, we have dealt in length with labor. For a moment, let's just talk relationships. How easy is it in 2019 for a South African to marry and have a family with a foreign national? It is not always that simple. Uh, a, a lot of clients that we've dealt with, uh, so those who have a foreign national with the, who try to register the, the birth of their children sometimes struggle with uh, homophobia officials. And the, it isn't consistent across the board. It depends on which MSA's official you encounter or which office you encounter. There's a lack of consistency in, in the way in which uh, the laws are implemented. Uh, the issue of birth registration in particular is a big, hot topic, and the courts have had to rule on it a number of times. Uh, the, the people who are trying to get married, it, it depends on uh, what permit the foreign national has. Uh, there was an attempt to stop uh, uh, foreign nationals with asylum permits from getting married a few years ago. A lot of homeless officers wouldn't allow for it, and that that became something controversial that we had to kind of intervene in. Uh, sometimes others who then have to go through that process, there's what's known, uh, homeless will then do a verification of relationship, which in itself is uh, very odd and intrusive. You can imagine you're trying to marry someone and now you have to prove, prove your relationship on a certain standard to another individual. So where uh, is so, the so human it element? Is, it, it, is a, it, it, it is something that is difficult and something that at times uh, puts people through an undignified process. No, definitely, because I feel like there's absolutely no human element in this whole discussion. Uh, no one cares. <laughs> Unless it, until it affects you, I guess, we don't really care about these kind of uh, questions and experiences that other people might be actually going through. Mm. And for our last question then, are our South African laws in conflict with each other? You mentioned the Immigration Act, the Refugee Act, the Citizenship Act, and I also read um, the Act in line together with the Labor Relations Act, and I found it somehow to be in conflict because even though you've got uh, laws that say you can only, um, what you call it, employ a foreign national when they have valid papers, for instance, you can't then just terminate the contract uh, when the permit expires or it turns out that maybe you as the employer did not do the correct background check and they actually don't have the necessary documentation because then that would be in conflict with the basic conditions of employment act so do these wor- do these laws actually conflict or are they complementing each other uh, so a lot of our laws don't read well together, uh, and it's, it's not just these laws. And it, it then becomes difficult. It, what it actually does, it creates such massive room for exploitation of foreign labor. And we see that particularly uh, people who work in the service industry, people who work on farms, we have a farm workers uh, 
union uh, uh, program as well, which is as farmers, people who work in the mining sector. You know, a lot of our, our economy was built on uh, foreign labor in mines. Uh, and what happens is because of that uncertainty in the renewal of permits and the vulnerability of status, you find uh, that employers in those sectors uh, exploit people to a harsh, harsh degrees. Uh, and that's where, you know, like where the elements of modern-day slavery start to come into effect. And again, it's not something that's unique to South Africa. You, you'll see a lot of similarities in uh, America as well. Uh, and th that's where the, this immigration debate has always been a bit difficult. So a, a lot of these countries that have deep inequality have always built their capitalist economies on the exploitation of labor, particularly foreign labor and minority labor. And the more vulnerable a person's particular status is, the more that they can get exploited. Uh, and this is something that is problematic. And then you find that uh, people can have certain rights within the Labor Relations Act, but their status in terms of the Immigration Act or the Refugees Act then pushes them out of being able to access those rights, which is problematic. Yo, it is. Yo, it's sad. It's absolutely... It's really sad. And... How do we get a hold of Lawyers for Human Rights for those of us people who are listening and they would like to be able to get in contact with you guys to get help? Okay, so we have uh, six offices across the country in Pretoria, Johannesburg, Messina, Durban, Cape Town, and Uppington. Uh, we are on Facebook and uh, we are on Twitter. Our contact details are on online and you can either... Uh, email us through the website. You can uh, write to us on Twitter, on Facebook, on any of our social media handles, or you can call any of our offices. Our numbers are in, in the directory in this big uh, cities. And all this information will be found on your website? Yes. Okay, we'd like to thank you very much for joining us here on the line this evening, Wayne Ngube, who is an attorney at Lawyers for Human Rights, um, Law Focus. Thank you so much for your time. The South African Institute for Advanced Constitutional, Public, Human Rights and International Law from the University of Johannesburg recently held a summit at the Constitution Hill to discuss the white paper concerning whether South Africans are welcoming to refugees. And the dissenting viewpoints that arose from the experts themselves are perhaps a good reflection of precisely the differing viewpoints at the grassroots level about foreign nationals in South Africa. Whereas Dr. Fatima Khan, director of the Refugee Rights Unit at the University of Cape Town, spoke of the South African legal system as well as the pragmatic experience of foreign nationals being hostile. And he gave the example of how as soon as you are discovered to be a foreign national who does not have legal documentation, you are immediately deported. This was not the only example that he cited. He also says that out of the 20,000 applications for asylum status at the Musina Asylum Office, not even one of those 20,000 asylum seekers were granted asylum. But Professor Lauren Landau director of the African Center for Migration and Society at this university, held a different view to Dr. Khan's sentiment, citing that South Africa is actually the most welcoming country to refugees than any other country in the world. 
the socio-economic challenges that the country is facing, which are a scramble for resources such as unemployment and the fact that poverty is high. And that is the real issue here, she said. She continued to add that according to the stats, refugees are, ho- are doing way better than the South Africans. They have better jobs, healthcare system, and they can afford the best houses. We believe that you may also have views that are just as interesting and dissenting as those reflected above. And to our question of whether South Africans are accommodating to foreign nationals, this is what you had to say. I think, I think we are still dealing with a lot of xenophobia, to be honest. Even though um, we are somewhat like accommodating, but there's still like, like there's a lot of tension. Like a lot of people are very closed-minded. A lot of people aren't willing to actually think about why people are coming here in the first place. It's just like a very messy conversation, I think. Um, I feel like South Africans are accommodating of um, our, our foreign brothers and sisters that come from European countries or from the, from the northernmost parts of the world and a little less accommodating of uh, people that are African internationals. I have no idea why. Um, I, I really don't know. It's really tricky. It's really tricky. I feel like we should we should look into that a bit more as to why we do that. Yeah. Um, I don't think South Africans are accommodating to foreign nationals. I don't know why, but there are too many reports of xenophobic attacks. Like, it's completely unnecessary. I just think South Africans have this negative idea of foreign nationals that's completely like not true and made up. So I don't think. South Africans are accommodating at all? No, they are not because I think they still um, uncomfortable first with the fact that some of uh, their fellow South Africans believe that foreigners are more hardworking than them. And another thing is because they are sort of intimidated by their strength and wisdom. Law Focus, Point of Information. In 2008, South Africa saw for arguably the first time since the end of apartheid an actual undignified and discriminatory overt attack of other human beings by its population. We were exposed to the world and labeled xenophobic. It was embarrassing. In 2015, there were further attacks again in KZN. These that are mentioned here are those that are in the public domain. Late March 2019, we awoke to news headlines about violence that had erupted in Durban. We are back at it again, South Africa, in the news for all the wrong reasons. The fact that a decade later, since the killings of over 60 people simply because they were foreign nationals, this is in spite the fact that 21 of that number were South African, we still have this problem surging and also based on public discourse as well as your views that we just heard means we cannot continue ignoring it. Let us try and uncover the more humane elements of this conversation in our next interview. Um, joining us on the line this evening is Tiseke Kasambala, who is a human rights activist currently at Freedom House, which is going to tell us about. And she has 15 years experience on rights issues working um, in Africa. Thank you so much for joining us here on Law Focus, Ms. Kasambala. Welcome. 
Thank you. North America wants to close its borders to Mexicans. Southern Europe is unhappy about the, uh, you know, <clears throat> is unhappy with fleeing North African and Middle Eastern people. South Africa is unhappy with its fellow African foreign nationals residing in the country. And with these observations, I would like you to first answer why, which countries are actually open to foreign nationals? And then secondly, what's the big problem? What's the big hoo-ha that states have against foreign nationals? Right. I think um, it's very difficult to answer which countries are actually open to foreign nationals because sadly, I think the global community and many countries globally have um, resorted to migration and regulating migration as a policy. What does that mean? It means that um, even the most open countries or those with the most open borders um, are quite regulated in terms of people who come into their countries and what they come into those countries to do. Um, we do know that there are countries such as Germany, for example, who have uh, followed the international refugee law to the T by allowing in refugees and asylum seekers. But most countries are even willing to flout their own um, international refugee uh, laws that they signed on to, unfortunately. So there is a, a, glow, a, a growing problem with um, over-regulation of migration globally. Why? Now, that is a, there are so many reasons why. But the saddest reason is basically that migrants are often seen as the other. They are often seen as invading um, a country, coming in, uh, in large numbers, looking for uh, free services, whether it's in the health and education sector or free handouts. There are a lot of misconceptions, um, misleading views, and stereotypes um, of migrants. And that's what leads to um, even more pressure um, to close them off and close off borders and prevent them from going across those borders. Yeah, and I mean... It's problematic because a lot of these, as I said, are misconceptions, but also they are usually misleading in nature. And um, many politicians use migration as a way of whipping up sentiment against immigrants, not addressing um, the problems of their, of their countries, um, not looking at the causes for the problems they face, but using migrants as scapegoats. Mm. all the issues um, that countries face, in particular social ills such as crime. And I don't think anyone would leave um, their country. No one would just walk away from their home if it's all good and nice. So obviously, for you to leave your origin, your place of origin, there must be serious, hectic circumstances that force you to walk away and go somewhere else and risk being abused and mistreated and court names, etc. What are some of the circumstances that force migrants to, to walk away from their homes? There are a number of drivers that lead to um, people leaving their homes, and they are, these are political, economic, demographic, and environmental factors. When we talk about political factors, we're talking about people either fleeing conflicts in their country, fleeing widespread repression, when you talk about economic factors, we're talking about people fleeing poverty, looking for greener pastures, um, looking for job opportunities, for example. When we talk about demogra demographics, 
um, which also closely related to geography. We're talking about people fleeing for cultural reasons, um, certain uh, demographic populations like young people seeking jobs elsewhere, which is also, there's also a combination of uh, economic reasons there. And then there are environmental factors, such as famine, such as cyclones, which we've seen now in our region in Mozambique and Zimbabwe and Malawi, where people are displaced and therefore sometimes flee across borders. Um, and so it's a multiplicity of reasons. It's quite complex. Um, and sometimes there's no just one single reason. Sometimes it's a combination. For example, we've seen a lot of uh, many Zimbabweans um, living in Zimbabwe um, for greener pastures elsewhere because of the polit- political and economic situation there. I mean, this is a conversation that certainly requires empathy and Unfortunately, there's a lot of confusion also sometimes about the services. Um, who is eligible for what services? Should it be a problem um, that there are services, for instance, that are meant only for citizens and not for everyone um, just because you are in the country? And could that then be the reason for fraudulent documents um, that are forged at times, perhaps, you know, um, so that maybe I can get the funding for my education if I've got a document that allows me to be a citizen of the country. What do you think? Um, well, I think there's a few factors. Um, first, let me just say that there is um, migration for reasons of fleeing wide-scale conflict, for example, um, where those who migrate under those circumstances um, are known as refugees or asylum seekers, meaning that they are fleeing um, circumstances which would lead to wide-scale death and put their lives at risk, and they flee to another country to seek asylum um, or to be given refugee status. That group of migrants um, is subject to um, dif- different kind of uh, regulations and rules once they um, arrive in the country, um, whichever country, the first country they fled, um, they often must be given uh, once they seek asylum and their asylum is approved, they must be given certain rights. And that includes uh, certain social provisions, housing, and food. Then we do also have, and then there's, there's a distinction between legal migration and illegal migration. Illegal migration is when someone uh, crosses a border without the right documents um, and sometimes is not seeking asylum, maybe seeking greener pastures, but does not... Um, seek to seek the authorization of the of the relevant state or authority to have a right to live in that country. Um, illegal migration happens all the time for various reasons, um, and anyone who's caught illegally in another country is subjected uh, to possible deportation. Then you also have legal migration, where people apply, whether it's for certain jobs, um, and are given the legal right to work in another country um, once their application has been approved. So as you can see, I think what often happens is people conflate the various groupings. Um, there's, con- there's a conflation of illegal, between illegal migration and refugees and asylum seekers. There's a confusion between who is legal and who's illegally in a country, and that leads to a lot of problems. Mm. So not all migrants, not all people crossing borders are in the country illegally and are simply living off a government handout. That that is not true. But the government also has obligations to the various groups. A government has the obligation 
to ensure and offer education to refugees and asylum seekers that are in that country. A, gun, a government is obliged to ensure protection towards refugees and asylum seekers as written out um, in uh, international law that protects refugees and asylum seekers. Mm. At the same time, a government, even if a citizen is uh, illegally in the country, yes, that person is subjected to deportation, but they're not subjected, they should not be subjected to lengthy and unnecessary detention. They should still um, be allowed their rights like any other citizen. It's the same when you, when you imprison someone for a crime, they still have the right to life. They have the right to, to, to be given um, food while they are under uh, the control of the particular state or in the hands of that particular state until at such a point as that they are deported. So there are also clear rules that respect the rights of even those who are illegally in the country. Mm. I mean, your answer now, you've already kind of went into my next question, which are the issues of xenophobia that we cannot exactly ignore. Um, perhaps you can just unpack for us what exactly it is and what are the possible underlying reasons for it? Yes, I think I think when we look at it on the surface, a lot of um, reasons have already been, um, I think, um, spoken to. Um, when people come in, they're often viewed as taking jobs. So the big issue here in South Africa is, is one of unemployment and foreign, um, foreign nationals um, are seen as uh, taking away the jobs of South African citizens. Um, there is also the view that uh, foreign nationals are paid far less um, below the rates uh, that, they, that they should be paid by employers, which undermines and undercuts um, South African citizens' ability to negotiate um, a living wage or a living salary. There's also perceptions that they are overwhelming the health and education system, um, that they are responsible for high rates of crime. Now, each one of these issues, and, and that leads to resentment, obviously. Um, but I think each one of these issues can easily be debunked. The problem, um, in my view, is when politicians take advantage of these concerns from citizens and seek to use them um, as a populist gambit for not addressing the underlying causes of unemployment, for, for example, the underlying causes of uh, a poor health system and poor health structures, and instead use um, uh, migrants uh, as scapegoats and people who are behind, the, as, as the people who are behind all this. When, in a matter of fact, it's government failure to address crime, to address unemployment issues, and to address why um, the public sector is failing. So these are all myths, but unfortunately they're constantly being perpetuated um, by, by government officials and others who, who, who are in important positions of power and who are now influencing the way citizens think about uh, nationals from other parts of the continent. And I mean, now that you have unpacked um, the issues underlying xenophobia, perhaps it might still be important to then ask if um, these are myths. Does that mean that the South Africans concerned, those ones who feel that this is a reality for them that they're experiencing daily, their concerns, are they then invalid or are they just not true? South Africans have very, very valid concerns and very legitimate concerns. I think 
that, that they have a very legitimate concern when it comes to high levels of unemployment. They have very legitimate concerns when it comes to the poor health sector um, and a, a health sector that is overloaded, um, which, which, which prevents them from receiving health care in a timely fashion, receiving adequate health care. Those are very, very, very valid reasons. But the issue is, what is the cause of this? Who is behind this? And this is when we now go into misinformation. So, like I said, for example, uh, South Africans have a very valid concern about crime. And we heard, for example, one of the ministers, of uh, the deputy minister of police um, in 2017, blaming criminals for the high levels. But in fact, there's no real evidence that foreigners are behind the high levels of crime. In 2017, um, according to the Department of Correctional Services' own report, um, of the uh, 161,054 um, prisoners nationally, only 8% of those formed, uh, were foreign nationals who formed a part of the total incarcerated population. So as you can see, that's just, uh, that was just scaremongering. Um, we can argue the same for hospitals, for that matter, where the minister, Moswaledi, um, claims that the reasons for poor health care was because the health system was overwhelmed with immigrants. But there's no reliable data that actually says that. Um, and that uh, claims that 9 out of 10 patients in provincial health facilities are immigrants. That is also not true. Um, when you look at the research, it shows that it's because the public sector for over 10 years um, has not been working well. And the problems are largely due to lack of human resources, poor human resources, um, poor supply, supply line management, and a lot of failure uh, to deal with these problems and the poor organization of service. And in fact, um, those who come who are immigrants, because they're such a small um, percentage, do not really have any major um, impact on how the public health sector um, services the communities. And so this we're talking about uh, a healthcare crisis and not about immigrants. But like I said, the politicians don't want you to know that. They don't want South African citizens to put pressure on them and say that they are responsible for this lack of services. It's easier to blame um, migrants. Yeah, and I mean, if there were data that is reliable that showed um, the sentiments, would then the conversation change? Well, you know, it's sometimes quite tricky to change sentiment and perception, um, especially in this day and age where we have social media and information flying around that hasn't been verified at all. But yes, if there was a concerted effort on the part of the government and leaders to tell the truth about migration, um, to directly speak to the concerns of South African citizens in a manner that offers um, solutions um, and not blame, then we, we, we would start to change this. And I know that some, some, some political parties in, in certain areas and some community leaders do do these efforts and try to talk about social cohesion instead, try to develop a, a greater understanding between the communities, South African citizens and other communities living um, in, in, in various parts of the country together. But not enough effort is being placed at the highest forms of leadership on doing that. 
In fact, around elections, it gets worse. We're seeing the DA spouting the same anti, anti-immigrant rhetoric. We're seeing the same within the ANC. And I think that is highly problematic and does nothing to change these perceptions because the figures are not being provided to the citizens. And I think it would be really important then to also know um, how we spot the differences between xenophobia and acts of criminality. So what are the differences? How do we see which is, which is what? Well, I think, I think this is an interesting one because, uh, again, it, 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 it say, say speaking about criminality appears to be an easier thing to talk about than the out, outgoing reasons for that criminality, which is the hatred of so-called foreigners in a community. We need to call a spade by spade. Um, it, is, it is by no coincidence when you find that um, in one area, only criminals, uh, oh, sorry, only foreign nationals are being attacked by so-called criminals. Uh, criminals do not choose where they see advantage. They see advantage and they take. So when we see consistent attacks and patterns of attacks against them by one community against another, we can't just blame that on criminality. That is not true. Um, and I think we've seen this type of language uh, internationally as well. For example, in the U.S., which never wants to call out racism, where you know African Americans are being consistently attacked by by the police, and the arguments are no, 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 no. It's just the police um, dealing with criminals. But there is a pattern, and when a pattern starts to show itself, we have to address the reasons why there is this pattern and call what we see by the name that it is. Bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Following a meeting with the Department of International Relations, the police force, home affairs, as well as ambassadors of other African states as a result of recent alleged xenophobic attacks over the past two weeks or so, there has been an agreement to set up a joint standing task force of South African officials and African ambassadors to deal with attacks on foreigners, crimes by foreign nationals and other issues. Some of the other views that arose in that meeting are that foreign nationals will only be given documentation if the jobs that they are doing cannot be done by a South African. Further, should a foreign national be found without any documentation, the embassies should assist the South African government with the finances to repatriate them back to their country of origin. Whether this is the right way to go about it is open to debate. Let us continue the conversation in our private and public spaces. There are many different sentiments, whereas it is correct that we should certainly not say things and do things that may splurge xenophobia. Professor Lauren Landau argues that we should not quickly condemn South Africans as thoughtless purveyors of violence. Dr. Khan, on the other hand, suggests that South Africa requires financial assistance from the global scale for healthcare services, education opportunities, as well as basic services. That way, everyone in the country is catered for. Perhaps this will ease up some of the real lived experiences by all of us. We had two excellent guests on the show this evening. Attorney Wen Ngube, who delved into all the legal requirements for foreign nationals operating and residing in South Africa. He did urge those who need 
such help and other matters to check out their website, Lawyers for Human Rights, for more details. We also engaged with Ms. Tiseke Kasambala, who gave crucial analysis about the current South African law and how it operates for foreign nationals. From our producer, Simba Honde, our technical producer, Kutrano Sirame, our law-focused researchers, Sisetu Zingelwa, Siabonga Mota, Veronica Mahwadi, and myself, Millicent Ndiweni. Thank you for tuning into Law Focus tonight. Good night. Law Focus, handing you your rights. Law Focus Podcast.